feeling blue, what do you do? We got stories to see you through that time of the month, that time of the month. Need a fix? Come get your kicks. We got tales by kooky chicks, that time of the month, that time of the month. Welcome to that time of the month! Um, Thank you all so much for being here. This is our big anniversary show. We had a five o'clock show, and this is our first time ever eight o'clock show. So give yourselves a round of applause for coming out eight o'clock on a Sunday. You guys are in for it because this is the R-rated show. It's our anniversary show, so it's sort of you know the most unforgettable stories, no matter how hard you try. Um, <laughs> they are fantastic stories. I am. I'm thrilled, thrilled to bring up this first lady. She was part of the boob show, and we raised money for uh, Save the Tatas, <laughs> which I just love that name. That's why I chose it. Um, to donate to. She was fabulous, and it's been a while now, and so I'm very, very happy to have her back. Please welcome Shelly Davis Wise. My boobs. <laughs> Can you hold it low? Can I hold it low? Yeah, okay. All right. I think I need it like a little reading light. It's okay. I'm, I'm just going to lift up this Bazoombas, melons, tatas, chichis, hooters, titties, rack, fun bags, jugs, boobs. Breasts. These mammalian organs created to engineer milk from lettuce and supply life-sustaining nourishment to human young are also used to entice, persuade, entertain. In this indulgent yet ironically puritanical age, the debate over public breastfeeding rages on. It seems there is nothing so glorified and vilified in modern society. Breast Shape and size are used to gauge a woman's worth, and in this world of fascination with appearances are often the definition, definition and source of a woman's self-esteem. And yet, what sided female in America has not gazed upon amply endowed woman and performed that secret, silent appraisal? Most real. <laughs> At practically every turn, we are confronted with breasts in magazines, billboards, television, movies, the internet. Breast fixation is marketed to our young people in the form of what I call cartoon tits. <laughs> For my generation, this is probably best exemplified by the 80s animated cult classic Heavy Metal, to which legions of teenage, teenage boys masturbated before the advent of the Victoria's Secret catalog. <laughs> Even at my tender age, when I knew those idealized breasts were freakish and unnatural, the blonde with the broadsword would need more than a body thong to keep that pair stable as she rode her pterodactyl into battle. <laughs> I had low expectations for my own breasts. My mother was a little woman with tiny breasts. They resembled little volcanoes, concavely sloped above the great plain of her chest. Capped by pink snow and topped with a clown nose, they were not attractive. <laughs> were she born 20 years later, she would have access to roadside breast enhancement, but alas, 
Her generation ushered, ushered in powdered baby formula, permanent hair color, boxed wine, and Valium, often simultaneously. <laughs> My grandmother, however, had one hell of a rack. I once saw her naked body in the bathtub. After that, I wondered if perhaps my mother were adopted. <laughs> the difference in their breasts could not be overstated. Grandma's breasts were plus, plush chest pillows, the kind that would beckon sobbing children for miles. They could have been on any woman's wish list. My mother wasn't adopted, though, because my grandmother was incapable of nurturing children born of her body. She did her genetic duty. There was no way she would voluntarily invite a child into her home. <laughs> I'm sure it was the ultimate bait and switch for my mom growing up. Here is this ample breast into which she might spill her tears, and yet they may as well have been the marble breasts of Venus de Milo for all the comfort they supplied. My breasts, which have enjoyed a long and notable career, made their debut around fourth or fifth grade. I wore what is called a training bra, which I've never really understood because they did not learn a thing. <laughs> Eventually, my set developed into perky little B-cup fillers. They sat high and firm and didn't bounce. They filled the bathing suit, even a bikini one summer. I had been given a nice, respectable rack. Like many women, I experimented with naming them left and right, Laverne and Shirley, Tweedledee and Tweedledum. Nothing was quite right, so they became the generic, the girls, as if their sisters resigned to spinsterhood. <laughs> I experienced breast envy only once in my life. In my ninth grade gym class, there was this little girl with big blue eyes and large, perfectly pendulous pear-shaped breasts supported by the sheerest of nylon slings. They gazed perfectly forward. It was hard not to stare back. She enjoyed an unsavory reputation. The rumors, I'm sure, started by the envious girls with misshapen, ill-proportioned, and awkward boobs, which, like two dogs in a back seat, each flocks to opposite windows to hang in the breeze. <laughs> but I also learned that having a great pair was all. But I also learned that having a great pair was all, was also not all that. I met my best friend Laura in that high school. Laura's breasts were magnificent. Her couplet of glorious double Ds were the thing of which she was most proud. Yet, the twins literally had a life of their own. Laura was a beautiful girl with dark hair, beautiful green eyes, and a chiseled Romanesque nose. But it was as if her boobs were the popular sister that always showed up 15 minutes earlier to every party to which she was invited and got all the boys' phone numbers first. Now in her third marriage to asshole number three, perhaps she realizes she should have studied a little harder in school instead of relying on her natural assets to get her by. But at the time, I didn't get all that stuff. From her, I learned that in a man's world, boobs are power. More than once, our underage yet shapely and strategically revealed décolletage gained us entry into dance clubs. A pair of bouncers at the safari bar in Dallas, Texas, swung the doors wide at our approach. No cover charge, no questions asked. It was the 80s, after all. <laughs> I celebrated my 18th birthday in a small town in the middle of Nebraska. My disintegrating family had relocated there in November, smack in the middle of my, high school, of my senior year of high school. I was already practiced at the art of age deception, but without my companion Laura and her double-barreled distraction, it was much more difficult to gain entry to bars. 
And it was, and I was in a college town. A valid ID, not cleavage, was the only acceptable passport. This was true everywhere except alone at one place and the ragged edge of town, Beezy's. <laughs> Beezy's was known for barkers and parking lot brawls and darts and bad cover bands. And they didn't cart at the door. My friend Carrie and I would go in and get guys to buy us beer. After a while, they accepted us as regulars and served us with a nod. It helped that later Carrie married the drummer of a band that played at the bar regularly. She was barely out of high school, and he was in his mid-thirties, but we just thought she was marrying up. <laughs> After Carrie competed in and won a bikini contest, I was emboldened to try at barroom competition. My opportunity came one Sunday night when they announced a wet t-shirt contest. Just <laughs> drunk enough, I put my name in the hat. <laughs> when I expressed doubt, Forrest, my friend, grabbed my hand and took me back to his house where we presided to light up a fat joint and smoke to completion as a rubber chicken named Sid hung from the light fixture. <laughs> we returned to the bar. There were only two of us. My, com my competition was a skinny biker hag. We put on the red wife beater tanks and some guys proceeded to pour ice water down the front of our bodies. We paraded out onto the floor and all I can remember was the glittering and greedy eyes of guys lining the dance floor. Applause was evenly matched as the MC went back and forth between me and the skinny biker bitch. Someone started chanting, skin to win, skin to win, and I took it as a personal challenge. I looked at that little girl with mosquito bites on her chest and she flinched. I raised my sodden shirt to an eruption of applause. It was mine. A $25 bar tab that averages out to $12.50 each. I don't remember anything about the rest of the night. A few months later, on the first date with the guy who was to become my poor boyfriend for a while, a guy glanced at me and then did a double take. Hey, aren't you that girl from the Beezy's Wet T-Shirt Contest? Wow, are you going to do that again? Of course, I denied it in Jeff's presence, hoping he didn't see my face as I lied. Inside, I answered that of course I was not, I was not ever going to do that again, while the disappointed man continued to look at me askance, sizing up my breasts and comparing them to his memory. In retrospect, I probably could have come clean with Jeff. In the middle of moving, he produced some photos of women with black squares over their eyes, one photo revealed a woman with a vagina that went side to side instead of back to front. Another showed a woman born with three breasts, two regular ones, and then one smaller one slight between and slightly below them. I realized that everyone, even poor naive Jeff, has a dark side. With the exception of nighttime skinny dipping in a state park in which our little band of three was busted by the park police and sent off with a warning, our beer confiscated, my boobs remained under wraps, except by invitation only. When my son was born in 2005, I finally had the opportunity to put my breasts to their intended use. When my milk settled in, my breasts swelled to rock-hard double Ds, a fierce and mighty rack if ever there was one. <coughs> Harvested from my womb by a cesarean section, my little guy put these things I've been lugging around to practical use. His first night of life, the nurse brought him in to me and put him into my arms. I raised him to my breast and presented him with the nipple. He mouthed it weakly. I was confused. Latch-on had never been a problem before. <laughs> Suddenly a hand, 
Suddenly a hand reached down, grabbed my nipple, and shoved it deeply into my hungry child's mouth. Never had my breast been so, well, manhandled before. I thought that the pap smear was the ultimate in indignities, but I was wrong. I became less a person than a milk truck delivering on demand at any time, day or night. My milk supply was ample, so much so that I dared not leave the house without extra breast pads. The sweet relief of milk letdown would cause a fountain-like express of milk. Were there a snowbank handy, I'm sure I could have written my name in it. <laughs> Mistakenly, I referred to my breasts and the act of nursing as booby. After my son started walking, when he wanted to nurse, he would follow me around with a pillow saying, Booby! <laughs> Finally, I cut him off from booby cold turkey and sent my deflating breasts into practical retirement. Today, my breasts don't get as much attention as they used to, less perky puppies hanging out the window. They are more like old dogs lying on the porch. <laughs> a reliable bra is now in order. The word support means so much more than it used to. <laughs> I once had a gay friend of mine ask why women tried on bras. After all, men didn't try on underwear or jock straps. I told him that there is no greater torture than to wear an ill-fitting bra. As I said this, a well-dressed professional woman walking by nodded a silent amen. <laughs> I don't think of my breasts much, except perhaps now when I'm getting them mashed in a mammogram machine, or the times I gaze at them in the mirror and think about how much higher on my chest they used to sit. The only fear I have about them is that they will one day be cancer-ravaged, and the things that were once a source of life will become a nest for death. Firm breasts no longer announce my suitability as a mate. Stretch marks, stray hairs, and just stuff no one ever told me about are the hallmarks of my maturity. My husband is probably the only one to appreciate my decolletage, which admittedly is becoming freckled and crepey. I moisturize with sunscreen, but, you know... I've lived a long time, and getting older is the price one pays. I no longer notice if anyone's eyes linger on my chest, for that is not, nor was it ever, my greatest asset. These days, my assets are above my neck and behind my eyes, but you probably couldn't tell by looking. The journey into my 40s has been more thrilling and satisfying than any second glance. I would trade experience and wisdom for perky breasts any day. You, may, you younger folks may doubt that, but... Given that age and gravity are immutable laws of nature, don't hang too tightly onto the flesh. Enjoy it, flaunt it even, but when it comes time to let go, just know a whole other experience awaits you if you are willing. As you ask your silent questions, I will answer them out loud. I absolutely guarantee you it's all real. <laughs> for Shelly Davis-Wise. Thank you for kicking it off for us. Oh, and keep it going for her natural breasts. Isn't that wonderful? Um, my mom and I always talk about how fascinating um, women with big boobs are. Like, because Our family's just not very good at growing them. So we just love the big boobs. Yay, big boobs! <laughs> Chris is also a big fan of the big boobs. Hey, Chris. Um, <laughs> All right. We're not kidding around. Um, okay, we're going to keep this show going, and then after this we'll do a raffle item. 
this next lady, I just love her, and uh, she's done the show twice now. And this, this story she's going to tell was from our first ever themed show uh, titled My First Time. So, on that note, please give her a warm welcome, Miss Hannah Malden. I've actually been sitting under a bench, so if I'm rubbing my ass, it's not creepy, I promise. <laughs> Alright, uh, this is... <laughs> it could be creepy if you want it to be. I am, I'm, I'll work with you. Um, my story is titled, My Mommy Was a Whore and Now I'm Going to Die a Virgin. <laughs> I'm trying that way. anxiety disorder is the technical name my therapist uses. I choose to say that I simply do not meet new people well, especially not attractive guy people. This is why, by the age of 27, I was surely Nashville's oldest, not super religious, virgin. And I don't mean technical virgin. I mean never kissed a guy outside of stage productions or gone on a real date and sure as hell never had one fondle my no-no places kind of virgin. <laughs> sure where this anxiety stemmed from. It may have come from the fact that my mom was an extremely promiscuous crack addict who, regular, who regularly abandoned her five children for any man that showed her the slightest attention, yet never missed an opportunity to remind me that I was fat. A missive constantly reconfirmed by the children of Shell Beach Elementary School and then Judkins Junior High. But then again, who knows where these things come from? <laughs> Regardless of what or who was to blame for my neuroses, the fact was, by 2010, after years and fortunes spent on therapy, <laughs> I had decided to accept my fate. Content to title my memoirs, My Mommy Was a Whore and Now I'm Gonna Die a Virgin, I would live comfortably, if alone, on the income my exploited childhood could afford. This is the story of how things began to change. I was at a trendy Nashville restaurant with my best friend Becky, celebrating her impending move to D.C. Drinking alone last night? Again? Becky asked. No. I lied. Actually, I had had four glasses of wine and fallen asleep in the bathtub, but I wasn't about to tell her that. And besides, I'd woken up before I drowned, so I was calling the night a win. <laughs> about you, Becky said. I know she's scared that after she moved. I turned to a complete recluse, locking myself inside my apartment Howard Hughes style, peeing in bottles. <laughs> to, to be honest, I was a little concerned about that myself. Uh, I already had disgustingly long fingernails. But I, but I didn't want her to worry. I'll be fine, I assured her. It's not like I've never had a boyfriend. I mean, I dated Christian Slater for like seven years. <laughs> From, like, Heather's on until the mid-90s when his career started to tank and he bit that guy in the stomach. I had to break up with him. But then there was Gavin Rosdale, and I'd still be with him today if that platinum bitch from No Doubt hadn't stolen them from me. <laughs> and, yes, Conan O'Brien and I are having some difficulty. He's a late-night guy. I have to get up at 6 a.m. We'll work things out. <laughs> Fine, Becky replied. Don't take this seriously. Die alone. See if I care. But the truth is, she did care. 
probably more than I did. So I wasn't surprised when she reached across the table less than a minute later, grabbing my hand in hers. I'm serious. You're an amazing, beautiful woman, she said. I cringed. I wasn't drunk enough yet for emotions. <laughs> it's time for you to put yourself out there, she continued. There's someone for everyone. After all, Mr. Darcy found Elizabeth. Yes, I said, and Jane Austen died alone. <laughs> Fine, be that way. But I warn you, being single forever won't be fun. All of those lonely nights, eating dinner all by yourself in front of the TV, holding entire conversations with your dog, until one day you fall asleep in the tub after too many glasses of wine and don't wake up. <laughs> the thought of my swollen, naked body lying undiscovered in a bathtub did make me cringe a little bit. I started to wonder if maybe Becky did have a point. She had her shit together more than I did. And, after all, I didn't want my obituary to read 27-year-old virgin whose bloated body was found floating in a bathtub weeks after drowning. It's not like I'm completely alone, I said. I do have George. Oh my god, Becky gasped. Please tell me you're not having sex with your dog. <laughs> I was half into a sip when she said this, and I started laughing, choking on my vodka. I couldn't stop coughing. Are you okay? asked a passing server. No, I said. I'm dying of consumption. Like Laura Flynn Boyle in The Road to Wellville? Yes, I said, except less skinny and less green. And the award for most obscure movie reference of the night goes to you. Thanks, he replied and walked off. You flirted, Becky exclaimed. No, I didn't. Yes, you did. I watched the server from across the room. He was short and stocky with glasses and curly hair everywhere but on his head. <laughs> he reminded me of a bald hobbit. <laughs> Which, as Becky would say, was just my type. I'm glad I hadn't noticed how cute he was before, or I probably wouldn't have been able to talk to him. Throughout the evening, he invented more reasons to stop by, getting me water or bringing us napkins, chit-chatting about everything from movies to graphic novels, until he worked up the courage to ask me out. By that time, I was too tipsy to say no. The following evening, Damien, yes, like the Antichrist, <laughs> was waiting for me in a nearby restaurant. It was actually here. We sat with a piece of chocolate cheesecake between us. So, Damien said, tell me about yourself. I work in publishing, children's books. Not really what I want to do, you know, forever. I'd like to write books of my own someday. Not children's books, but, you know... <laughs> So you're a writer, he interrupted. That's cool. I tried writing, mostly screenplays, when I was in L.A. Did I tell you I was in L.A.? No, I said, annoyed that he cut me off. Yeah, I lived there for like eight years, but you know how it is. Hard to make it in L.A. That's why I'm in Nashville. Because you're a failed writer, I don't say. So you're a screenwriter? Not really. I mean, I've written screenplays. But mostly I'm a musician. Great. Another musician. In Nashville. Go figure. I didn't say that either. Instead, I focused on my naked, bloating body, decomposing in a bathtub. I needed to give him a chance. Yeah, he went on. I thought I'd try my luck in Nashville. What about you? Are you a musician? 
No, I replied. I'm so musically untalented that the director of my high school drama department asked me to lip sync during musical numbers. <laughs> so you're in the theater? Yeah, just amateur stuff, you know, for fun. I'm on the board of a local community theater. I've done a lot of producing and directing and some acting, though not in musicals. <laughs> I laughed. He didn't. I got the feeling that he was just waiting for me to stop so he could speak again. I would say this for him, though. For someone with so little going for him, he sure did have a lot of self-confidence. Yeah, I did theater all through school. I didn't want to do it once I got to L.A. I mean, everyone in L.A. is an actor. And yes, he actually did air quotes. <laughs> we, went on this, we were on like this for a while. He'd ask me a question and then barely let me finish before trying to one-up me. It was stand-up comedy that finally killed the day. I want to do stand-up comedy, I told him. I've done a lot of improv and theater, but never stand-up. It's on my list of goals for this year. I had barely finished the last syllable before I received his smirking follow-up. Stand-up comedy? <laughs> I've done that. My best friend was a comedian, and when he started producing shows, he totally put me up. Once, I had to fill two sets at the comedy store before the headliner, and I didn't even have any material prepared. I was over this buffoon. I began to gather my things, but he just wouldn't stop blathering away. Yeah, I was just standing at the bar, ordering like my eighth whiskey, and he comes up and tells me I need to go on in five minutes, and I was like, dude, I need a shot, you're buying. And I, I was nervous at first, but I totally killed. All of our friends were there, and they were all cracking up. I was fed up. I had collected all of my things in what I deemed to be a purposeful and meaningful way, and had moved to the edge of my seat. I took a moment to compose how I would tell this cocksure jackass off. I would start with a bit of cheesecake that had fallen off of his fork and landed on his grotesquely bushy arm hair. I would then tell him that the maxim article from which he learned to talk to women had failed him utterly. Then I would let him know that his CVS store brand cologne had been turning my stomach for the last 20 minutes and that I was leaving before he gave me a migraine or made my womb dry up. <laughs> I would decide which when I reached that point in my exit speech. You have cheesecake in your arm hair, I began. But the bastard immediately cut me off. Oh, <laughs> oops. He looked at his arm, lifted it to his mouth, <laughs> and licked the cheesecake out of his hair. I decided to forego my exit speech and simply make my exit. I'm sorry to disappoint those of you who only stuck with this story because you were hoping for some erotic dis description of my kinky demaidening. But, as I said in the beginning, this is a story of how things began to change. My first real date. I guess I could state that after being accosted by all of my friends, I did end up giving Damien a second chance. I could say that eventually, I realized that the above story may have been a slight exaggeration by an extremely insecure girl who judged people before they could judge her. I could probably include the fact that after living for two years in the Bible Belt, Damien was simply excited to meet somebody else from California who shared his interest. I could even add that on our fourth date, after the confidence of a few vodka grape juices, I experienced the most memorable Memorial Day a girl could hope for. <laughs> that three years later, 
we're still together, and that he's sitting in this room right now being supportive <laughs> while I read a horrible story about him <laughs> in front of an audience of strangers. my follow-up essay, Fifty Shades of White Stomach Blubber. <laughs> Thank you. Oh my gosh. Hannah Malden, keep it going. Air blowing up, coming back. And keep it going for Damien. <laughs> we love Damien. Uh, you're about as good of a sport as my, my mom was in the last show. Um, <laughs> okay, hmm, who is next? Oh, it's Carolyn. Um, <laughs> we, I, was, I was just so thrilled when uh, Chris, Chris got Caroline to do the show, and she's such a gem we found here in Nashville. And I'm so thrilled she's back to do the show, and we hope to have her on lots more. Um, let's see, she was in the show titled Makeups, Breakups, and Match.com in February for Valentine's Day. Please give her a big round of applause, Caroline Williams. As a second semester senior, I found myself reflecting over my time at Vanderbilt. Being from Nowheresville, Indiana, I had very vague expectations for my college experience at the prestigious Southern School. I imagined sipping coffee and studying with other intellectuals during the week, and spending my weekends dancing at debutante balls and partying on yachts in the ocean. Side note, I hadn't actually consulted a map about the location of Tennessee. I was ready to leave the cornfields of Indiana behind and spend the next four years with the preppy socialites of Nashville. A week after moving into my dorm, my boyfriend of three years dumped me. Apparently, the beautiful soulmate connection we had only existed when he was also getting sex on the regular. I did what any confident, emotionally stable 19-year-old girl would do. I made a Facebook status about a small dick and pounded eight shots of tequila. What daddy issues? Besides, I was sure I'd quickly find a fraternity gentleman with a name like Bradford or Sebastian who would make me forget all about my lame high school love. With adrenaline from the breakup and confidence from the alcohol, I left my dorm with my roommate to visit a friend in a different building. When we got to our friend's hall, a boy popped his head out of his room and started making conversation. I sized him up quickly and decided he would do. I was on a mission for a rebound boyfriend. The boy invited me into his room for some Nintendo 64, and I entered after giving my roommate a sly wink. This was way too easy. He half-heartedly jammed Mario Kart into the machine, hit a few buttons, and announced that his Nintendo was broken. Being a child of the 90s, I knew that any malfunctioning in 64 could be fixed by blowing into the game cartridge. I blew into it, actually more like sloppily blew a mixture of spit and tequila into it, and turned on the console. With my back still to the boy, I heard him say, I was hoping we could do something else instead of play Nintendo. I turned to him and he stared deep into my eyes. In a low voice, he told me that he had noticed me around campus and was blown away by my beauty. He had wanted to get to know me since the first time he laid eyes on me, but never had the guts to approach me. He said that seeing me in his hallway today had been an answer to his prayers. I'm bullshitting you. I turned around and realized he whipped his dick completely out of his pants. 
He looked at me and in complete seriousness said, take it or leave it, bitch. <laughs> to recap, I had known this kid for about two minutes. I'd like to say I slapped him and promptly stormed out, but I also must remind you that I had just been dumped and was extremely drunk. It took me about 20, 20 seconds to decide that no, Caroline, you cannot take it. <laughs> I thanked him for his penile offering and I let myself out. <laughs> Don't think that I gave up on Vanderbilt boys after this incident. I continued to be optimistic. I continued to tell myself that the, hey, you up, texts at 3 a.m. were incredibly romantic. And that drinking Natty Light and grinding in the basement of a frat house could turn into a beautiful, fulfilling relationship. There were still good guys out there. Probably not the insane man who jacked off on me on West End, which is a story for a different day. But there had to be some good guys out there somewhere. I kept the hope alive until my sophomore year, when I gave up on my Vandy peers and got back together with my ex-boyfriend, small dick and all. We enjoyed a long-distance relationship for a few months until he broke up with me again. This time, he explained that he had fallen for one of his best friends, a male friend. My lack of penis wasn't working for him anymore, and that stung. Despite all the questionable and often regrettable experiences we've shared, I have no resentment toward these college boys. But do note that I say college boys and not college men. If anything, all of these crazy antics have taught my friends and I some very important lessons. And the lessons we have learned include, but are not, not, but are not limited to, if a boy compliments your new lowlights in your hair or your new pair of jeans, run. He's more interested in your brother. When a boy tells you, I bet you can't get into the top bunk, he just wants you to get into his top bunk. Um, if your hookup lets you borrow clothes to wear home in the morning and they include an I'm Rick James bitch t-shirt, he probably isn't your Prince Charming. If the boy whose parents are paying over $50,000 a year in tuition tells you that he can't afford condoms, he's an asshole. At the end of the day, I just have to take pity on my Vanderbilt peers because they are suffering from what I've coined the Vandy boy curse. In high school, these boys were getting A's and leading organizations to put on the application that would ultimately get them into Vanderbilt. In other words, they were great study buddies, but constantly friend-zoned. Now at college, they're like kids in a candy store. One of my male friends even told me that he lost his virginity his first weekend at Vandy, and he hasn't looked back since. Once you pop, the fun don't stop. Why should I expect them to settle down when they're just getting started? I have no doubt that after graduation, as I settle down into a real home and a real career, I will find a great man who is interested in much more than sharing 3 a.m. Qdoba and a sloppy drunken hookup. And that's when I'm going to try dating again. Until then, there's only one man I will count on. And he has everything I need at this time in my life. He always answers my calls, he always comes over when I ask, and he always leaves me satisfied. And as long as I keep tipping him well, the Domino's delivery man will never leave me. At least until he gets his GED and a much better job. Caroline Williams. It's really sad that that is so true, right? I mean, did she nail those descriptions of the guys and the examples? And the sad thing is, is I went to college a long time ago and it was the same way at San Diego State. Um, so now you see, Mom, why I was single for so long. Uh, <laughs> Caroline Williams. Oh, my God. Yes, memories. Um... All right, so this next lady, 
She did the first show and just knocked it out of the park. Everybody was in stitches. And I really couldn't decide. And then after that, she came back like three times in a row. Maybe like one didn't do it. One in between there, she didn't do it. Um, and uh, every time, just wonderful. So it was really hard to decide which of her stories to tell. But I selfishly wanted to hear this one again because we did not have a good recording of it. Um, it was a tough call. She had very many funny stories. Um, but we're, we are thrilled to have her back here today, and I know you guys will all enjoy her. Please welcome Coco Warbucks. Thank you. I'm very excited to be here again. I love this show. And I'm a little shy about this story, but... Now it's great. A little shy. Wait. Oh my gosh, I can't see it. Okay. Okay, so... Since recently separating from my husband, I started seeing a therapist for the first time. And she had me talking about my past serious love relationships so we can figure out if there's some sort of pattern that I'm following when I'm picking a man. And we were on my third most serious relationship when I found myself sharing some very intimate details about lovemaking, like our lovemaking. And I'm not sure she was quite ready for this, and I don't know if you guys are, but, uh, you know, Melanie has heard this, so she said it's okay, so we're going to talk about And, uh, so, making love to Kevin was like constantly being on a movie set of a porno. It was our third Valentine's Day together, and my 143rd appearance as Barbara Streisand... Barbara was one of his favorite characters for me to portray. My funny Valentine was an indie filmmaker, and he carried his love for fantasy over into the bedroom. He couldn't quite distinguish the real world from the perfect world of lights, camera, action. Don't get me wrong, I loved his imagination, the chance to escape into different worlds that I'd only dreamed about. Plus, knowing there was a good chance there'd be an orgasm before we wrapped didn't hurt. So playing Barbara wasn't so bad. As long as it wasn't Kevin's X-rated version of Little Orphan Annie, the slutty teenage years. Was, you know. But things got pretty complex with our productions. So when Kevin got tipsy one night off too many amaretta sours, I knew it would be much more fun than usual. Instead of spending 20 minutes setting up camera angles and lighting, it would probably only take 10 minutes. Kevin was not what I would call a spontaneous lover. Everything had to be meticulously planned, from the positioning of my left thigh to the Academy Award-like presentation of his penis. <laughs> there were moments during our sexcapades that I felt so unloved. It felt fake. Like we were hiding from real intimacy. Intimacy that regular couples shared. Stories I heard a girlfriend of mine tell about a boyfriend saying he'd love her no matter what her breath smelled like or how much weight she gained. He adored her imperfections. That was not the case with Kevin. There could be no smell, pimple, hair out of place. He had us trained to take showers before and immediately after any sexual activity. Again, it had to be as far from reality as possible. God forbid you had gas, it would traumatize him for days. Days. So, here comes Kevin, naked and greased up with baby oil, 
He said it made him look more ripped on camera. As he came close, I sang a few bars of, Papa, can you hear me? I walked up the stairs. <laughs> no, I'm like, this is this guy. But, um, kind of miss him now, you know? I walked up the stairs to our apartment one night, and I couldn't help thinking about a couple I saw on the train. They were holding hands, something Kevin would never do because my palms are really sweaty and it grossed them out. And they, and they looked like they were really in love, laughing, giving each other small pecks. It was as if they were the only two people in the world. Things with Kevin weren't all bad. We shared many laughs together, shared a love of science fiction, a love of old movies, and of course trying new sex positions. Still, the question kept gnawing at me. Was I in a relationship with someone who was head over heels in love with me? Or just wanted my heels over my head? <laughs> was he even capable of like unconditional love that I wanted? As soon as I got in the door, Kevin was there with a devilish grin, camera around his neck, and Commander Chakotay costume on. <laughs> he said, Star Trek night. <laughs> up over his shoulder and led me to the closet. We had a huge walk-in closet where he kept his world of illusion, or as I was starting to think, his chamber of denial. In the middle of the closet hung a disco ball with a Princess Leia doll naked from it. To the left were like 50 wigs in every color and length you could imagine, and to the right over a hundred costumes ranging from Marilyn Monroe to Beyonce's freakum dress. Funny, Kevin's costumes only took up one small shelf, which consisted of five, the five most like traditional male costumes: pirate, pimp, fireman, police officer, and cable guy. That's it. <laughs> I was getting more depressed by the minute and couldn't deny any longer that I was enabling this behavior. I possibly was going to have to face the reality that Kevin and I didn't have the relationship I wanted. Although we had been together for four years, I realized that he had no idea who I really was. Can't we just be in the moment instead of on the good ship Voyager? I pleaded. He, he thought for a second and he was like, I have an idea. Let's jump in the shower together. We'll light candles. I'll set up the black light. Okay, I said, ignoring the black light part. <laughs> I, I thought, I thought, wow, maybe doesn't need the show. This could be it. I waited for about 25 minutes for him to set up the bathroom. I had nearly fallen asleep, but the minute I walked into the bathroom, my heart filled with glee. There were candles, Seal was playing, lightning in the background. Seal was particularly special because we saw him perform on our first date. I couldn't believe it. How could this be so easy? The smell of bubbles and the sultry music made me feel drunk. I was so immersed in the sensuality of the moment, I barely took notice <laughs> that he positioned us right in front of a mirror. Oh my gosh, wait a second. I hope I don't need that page. Oh no, I already read that. He positioned us right in front of a mirror. The thought crossed my mind for like a split second that he was setting up another scene and not being in the moment like I was, but I was like, no, no, it can't be. 
I was in a world of pleasure when I started hearing Kevin say, Oh, this looks so good. Yeah, would you look at that ass? Before he nearly smashed my entire face into the wall, I realized he was getting off on the view of his own ass. His big, muscular, bulbous ass. Kevin, what the fuck? I can't believe you. You were watching your own ass in the mirror the whole time. I then proceeded to do a little impersonation of him, like, which he, of course, loved because he, it was of himself. Like, you asshole. I can't believe I almost thought you actually wanted to please me for once, to make me feel wanted and sexy without your stupid goddamn games. Oh, come on, Kegel. Why do you always have to be so sensitive? That was it. This is ridiculous. There was no future here for us. I hate you, Kevin. I screamed on the top of my lungs. As I started throwing anything I could get my hands on at him, the toilet brush, the stupid baby wipes that he used to wipe his delicate ass. <laughs> what man uses baby wipes? I mean, now I know, I, like I've learned, men do use baby wipes, but I don't know. I know, uh, yeah, I've known a couple since then. But I loved him so much that I just hated him. What made it worse was that he was so sexy to me. Although sexiness to him was perfection, he was far from it. He was of average height, five foot nine. He had a clean shaven head that he liked to call bald by choice. <laughs> Even though he was definitely losing his hair. He had a beautifully muscular body, which would be covered in hair, much like a wildebeest, except he shaved his entire body once a week on Thursday nights, right after Wheel of Fortune. <laughs> kind of missed that too. But he had a smile that could light up the night, and he was funny as hell. I'm sorry, please, I don't know why I'm like this, he said. He started kissing my neck and pressing himself against me. I was falling for it, falling intoxicated again by him. I gave in to Kevin that night, and we made love for one last time, and I left him for good the very next morning. About eight months later, Kevin had become a pretty well-known guy in the indie film industry, I saw him on TV at a red carpet premiere, and in magazines and interviews, I thought, damn, maybe I should have just worn those wigs and kept my mouth shut. <laughs> I could be living it up with him right now. Of course, he had a new girlfriend who was 15 years younger than him, and me. But I didn't stay bitter for long. Thanks to Kevin, I auditioned for my community theater as the lead in Yentl. <laughs> no, I, no, I didn't really do that. <laughs> Just, you know. But, uh, had I worked up the nerve, I would have nailed it. I do a fucking mean Barbara impression. As I said earlier, Papa, can you hear me? That's her real name. Give it up for her. <laughs> I love that story. Oh my god, so funny. You really do. I know. You should Facebook him. 
tell him we all say hi. <laughs> then my dad loves him too. <laughs> story. Everyone was worried about my parents being here, but they seem to be having a good time, and I'm sure Russell's having fun sitting right in between them through all these stories. <laughs> oh. All right. So this is the last time I think, it, well, hope maybe, that I'm going to be telling this story. It's been a little much lately. It is called Robbed and Overdrawn. Sorry, Bob, I know you've heard this a bunch. Um, okay, ready? It was 9 o'clock on a warm Los Angeles fall night, 2007. <coughs> it had been a long day. On my way home, I stopped at an ATM. I was the only one in the parking lot. After making my transaction, I walked back to my car, opened the door, and was about to get inside, when out of what seemed nowhere, a man grabbed me, put a knife to my throat, and demanded I give him all my money. After I finished screaming my head off, I tried to give him whatever he wanted, but unfortunately, I was overdrawn at the time. I thought he'd realize I was a lost cause and move on, but he didn't. He forced me into the driver's seat while he climbed in the back seat directly behind me, keeping the knife to my throat the whole time. He then instructed me to drive. After a few moments, of the awkward silence was killing me. So I began to apologize. I said, you know, I'm sorry I don't have more money to give you. It's just, I'm really bad with my money. I've already balanced like two checks this month. And I just never seem to be save, I, I never seem to be able to save a penny. Oh, and I've been really irresponsible with credit cards, too. I think I've even got a debtor's anonymous. I should probably go back. I mean, I may look like I have money, but that's because just because I totally overspend and I don't stay within my budget. After letting me ramble without taking a breath, he mumbled, Yeah, I hear you. <laughs> After a few minutes, he told me to pull over. And that's when he put a tighter grip on me he pressed the knife steady to my throat, and he started groping me. It hit, it hit me what was about to happen, so I started in on another rant. Oh, no, you're not going to rape me, are you? Oh, no, please, I don't want to have to go to therapy. I'm not really even sure it works. Oh, God, please don't. I'm a pretty well-adjusted person. I grew up in Orange County. My parents are still together. This is going to totally screw me up. I don't want to carry this into all my future relationships. And I definitely don't want to turn into my grandmother and cross the street whenever I see a minority male. <laughs> he cut me off. Shut up! Shut up! And pull up into that dark area. No, I cried. I know what people do in dark areas. He yelled, just shut up and pull up. Then he added, I'm not going to hurt you. I didn't believe him, but then I saw him put away his knife. So I pulled up into the dark area, and he jumped out. A wave of relief poured over me as I sped off. I was so stunned to be getting away unharmed, well, aside for his having grabbed my boobs. But who could blame him? I have a really nice rack. As I was driving, overjoyed to be free, I couldn't help but recall what several ex-boyfriends had said to me about how I talked too much. Hmm, I thought, maybe they were right. I mean, this guy didn't even want to rape me. <laughs> the police responded quickly to my call. When I told the officer what happened, he started praising me. Wow, that was some quick thinking. 
that's amazing how you're able to talk your way out of the situation by humanizing yourself. He thought it was some sort of a tactic. <laughs> I accepted the praise, not wanting to admit, no, actually, I'm just really annoying. <laughs> I woke up the next morning completely distraught. I had horrific nightmares all night. All I wanted was my mommy and daddy. I waited until 6 a.m. to call my parents. I wanted them to have one more night of sleep before they started picturing me slashed to pieces. I worried about telling them because I didn't want them to worry. My family raised me right. My folks are already extraordinarily wound up, especially my mom, who told me she has to wake up earlier and earlier because there are too many things she needs to get up to start worrying about. Before I could even say hello, my mom started crying. Oh my god, what happened? Suffice it to say, within an hour of my call, my dad was at my West Hollywood apartment to escort me to Orange County, where it was safe. The entire 45-minute trip south on the glorious 405 freeway, I had the privilege of receiving a lecture from my dad on ATM safety. Now, what have we learned here, young lady? No ATMs at night. When we arrived at my parents' house, my mom ran out in her pajamas, hugged me, cried, and then said, come in, you have to see all the emails you've gotten. What? Apparently, my mom had sent a mass email to everyone we know with the subject line, Melanie was kidnapped, this is not a joke. I was thinking, yeah, with a subject line like that, I'm glad friends and family weren't just like, eh, delete. As I was reading all of the responses, I was really touched by the outpour of love. I also noticed that the emails were falling into one of three categories. One, I'm so sorry this happened. If you need anything, please don't hesitate to ask. Two, if the police find this guy, I'm going to personally cut off his balls. Three, then there was my Uncle Bob, who simply replied, that sucks. <laughs> At first, I was a little put off by my uncle's nonchalant response, but it turned out to be the most helpful because it showed me how to stay brief. <laughs> After all the drama died down, I figured I was okay since technically I wasn't harmed, but I started to see that I was pretty rattled. It came to a boiling part one night at Walgreens. I found myself patrolling their parking lot. I came out of the drugstore and it was dark. I immediately noticed the man loitering in the back. As I stood there in front of the automated doors opening and closing behind me, I yelled, Sir, you're either coming in or you're headed out. <sighs> I scared the poor homeless man to death. <laughs> but I really impressed the staff at Walgreens. They've been trying to get rid of the guy for weeks. The next indication that I might have been struggling occurred on my first date after the incident. When my, when my date picked me up, I realized I was terrified to be alone in the car with a man. I should mention that I had known this guy for a few years, but still, I clung to the door handle for dear life, 
and in the event he tried anything funny, I was simply going to drop and roll out of the car. <laughs> After that, I decided to see a shrink, a trauma specialist. It was very helpful. The therapist explained that although everyone experiences trauma differently, there are a few symptoms that affect everyone the same. Flashbacks, hypervigilance, nightmares, increased anxiety, avoidance of places and situations that are reminders. It was oddly reassuring just to know that what I was experiencing was normal. She said it would slowly get better, and one day I would be free from all of this. She also said it would be helpful if I talked about the attack. She said it would take the power out of it. I think she suggests talking confidentially with friends and loved ones, but I decided to start talking about it at comedy clubs. <laughs> at first, audiences didn't seem to know how to respond. They didn't want to laugh, but that's what they came to the comedy show to do. And now, some blonde chick was talking about how she was nearly raped. I may have freaked out a lot of people, but I started to feel much more like my old self. Meanwhile, a few months after the incident, the detective on my case called to inform me that a man whose fingerprints matched ones found in, in my car was in custody. This news sent me on a huge adrenaline rush. I felt like the lead story on CSI West Hollywood. Sadly, though, this man was linked to another case where he had done something similar to a woman who wasn't as lucky, or I guess as annoying. I, I went to the courtroom to testify against him, but when the guard brought the defendant out, I wasn't sure he was the right guy. My doubts were quickly put to rest, however, when my man in the orange jumpsuit looked out into the crowded room, out of the crowded courtroom, he zoned right in on me and rolled his eyes. <laughs> like he was annoyed to see me again. Right, Dad? You were with me. He really did this. It was crazy. So I was... I was so nervous as I took the stand to testify. I barely remember a second of it. I do vaguely recall having parts of my testimony stricken from the record because I talked too much. <laughs> Nevertheless, our attacker is now serving 25 years to life. Well, that's the end. <laughs> it is true, you don't, I don't even think about it anymore. Although sometimes I scream when someone comes behind us. I remember we were walking, and some guy was running like on a jog, and I was like, ah! Like, so every now and then it just comes out of nowhere. How are you feeling, Chris? Are you excited? Yeah. Yeah. Do you guys know Chris Pilney here? He was our first token man, and he's been back many times because he has set such a high standard. Please welcome Christopher Pilney. Let's give it up for Melanie, first and foremost, for putting all this together for the podcast, for everything. She's great. She's very funny. Great job to everybody up here tonight. Let's give it a round of applause for them. Everything awesome. And also, the show is on Sunday at 7 p.m., and Caroline will be opening with some new material. So, and it's college night, so ID, three bucks to get in. It'll be a lot of fun. Come on out. Oh, didn't you say if they say... Oh, and then for anyone who's here tonight, or is here earlier, if you say that uh, it's my time of the month, okay, then I'll let you in for three dollars, I guess. So. I really don't care about money, but you have to charge something for shows. It's annoying. Like, I really would just not make anybody pay anything, but... 
So my story is called Memoirs of a Panty Slinger or a Rebel Without a Bra. <clears throat> Several years ago, I took a job working as a cashier at Victoria's Secret. The long story as to why and how a straight man with plans to attend dental school did this would take far more than 1,500 words to tell, so I'll leave you with the abridged version. I ended up at Victoria's Secret the same way most men end up on daytime talk shows. I got dumped. I couldn't get a new girlfriend to save my life. I was getting hit on by gay men everywhere I went. And to top it all off, I began growing breasts. I now believe my boobs were the result of eating too much soy, which has a high amount of estrogen in it and has been known to cause such reactions in prepubescent girls. But I didn't realize this at the time because I was simply uh, too busy freaking the fuck out. It's one thing as a man to feel like you don't understand women. It's another to feel like you're becoming one. <laughs> Desperate to regain my swagger, I decided I needed to study girls, to go somewhere I could immerse myself in them. The first place that came to mind was a brothel. The only problem was, where was I going to find a brothel in Nashville? With a semester of college still to go, I wasn't about to leave town for Vegas either. So, with temporary, purely educational prostitution out of the question, as well as the very real possibility I might need a bra, I applied to Victoria's Secret. <laughs> what ensued was one of the most entertaining and odd years of my life. From having women regale me about their recent hysterectomies, to having one of my managers show me her new nipple piercings, I never knew what the hell to expect when I walked into that store. The customers were my primary interest. I figured if I learned anything about women, it was going to come from watching and interacting with them. I was also curious to see how they'd react to a grown man bagging their thongs. I assumed they would think I was one of three things. A homosexual, a pervert, or a perverted homosexual. <laughs> Whichever they felt was most apt for the moment. It came as a surprise then that most female customers were not only receptive to my help, but also my opinion. They wanted to know what a straight man thought about things. Lingerie, perfume, panties. The question I was constantly getting was, which do you like best? Which was followed by my time one response. Well, which would look best on the floor? Because really, that's where it was going to end up anyways. I was also surprised by how forward women were. One customer came to the counter to exchange a bra for a bigger size due to the fact that she'd gotten, and I quote, new boobies. Well, before the surgery, she said, looking down and pushing them together, I was about a 34A, but now, thanks to this guy over on Wedgwood, I'm a solid 34C. Aren't they just great? It was like watching a mother hold her baby for the first time, mixed with a six-year-old girl getting a pony for her birthday. I've never seen a person look upon anything with such pride before. She was overjoyed, and had the doctor not advised her to avoid any activities that required jumping, slip and slides, or extreme gravitational forces, she probably would have skipped out of the store. This was how excited she was. Another woman told me she couldn't wear any of our panties because they all, one way or another, got stuck in her butt. That was her exact phrasing, stuck in her butt. I like to think that had my life been some sort of ongoing musical, and not the banal sequence of pointless events that it actually is, this would have been the moment in which I, the heroic loser, would have broken out into a parody version of Usher's Love in this club. These panties get stuck in her butt, in her butt, in her butt, in her... But instead, I just apologized and handed her the receipt. I really hate singing that part. That's hard. 
The customers taught me how to assert myself with women, but it was my coworkers who taught me the most important lesson about their sex. Girls talk, and when they talk, they talk in explicit detail. I was folding panties one evening when I overheard two of the girls discussing a recent hookup one of them had had. He had this vein, one of them said, that wrapped around his dick like, uh, uh, a blue vine, said the other girl. No, no, oh, 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 what's the word? A string of blue Christmas lights? No, she said, no, 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 it's a kind of staircase. A spiral staircase, I said. Yes, thank you. A spiral staircase, that's it. He had a vine that wrapped around his penis like a spiral staircase. Oh, said the other girl. And I swear, I don't know if it was the veins doing or not, but I have never come so hard in my life. If it was possible for humans like snakes to dislocate their jaws and lay them on the floor, this is precisely what I would have done. I couldn't believe what I was hearing. As a man, you naively assume that every interaction you have with a woman is going to remain in a vacuum. Sure, they might give their friends the outline version of the experience. Roman numeral one, we had dinner. Letter A, I had fish. Roman numeral two, we watched a movie at his place. But never would it expand to lowercase Roman numerals and lowercase letters. That would just be indecent. I only assume this because that's how men communicate in swaths. And I'm not sure why I even still believe this at the time. I had inside information for years that women, when left alone, get down to the nitty-gritty. An ex-girlfriend, for example, once told me, after coming home from a sex toy party, that the dominant topic of conversation had been uncircumcised penises. What did they look like? <laughs> Apparently most had never seen one. Most of them, that is, except one girl who had briefly dated a guy with a foreskin. The description she gave and was later relayed to me reminded me of a great poem title, right up there with T.S. Eliot's The Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock, and Robert Frost stopping by woods on a snowy evening. To her, an uncircumcised penis looked not like an earthworm, but a pink anteater in a turtleneck sweater. <laughs> I still love that. <laughs> Are there any poets in the room who could write that for me? I would love to know. I actually had someone draw a picture of that. He, he was like, I want to draw some art. Give me some of your essays. And let me, let me write something. He drew me a picture of a pink anteater in a turtleneck sweater. It's pretty good. <laughs> Working at Victoria's Secret didn't necessarily make me better with women. It simply brought my image of them into a more realistic and startling focus. They were no longer the cult of true womanhood. They didn't sit around sipping tea and speaking in hushed tones about community fundraisers <laughs> or the best way to knit a sock. They were what I came to call the female tribe a highly sophisticated group of skilled communicators who love nothing more than knowing everything they can about another person all the way down to the veins. It's a humbling realization as a man, and exactly the reason why, when I wrote a letter to an ex-girlfriend confessing that I still loved her, I prefaced it by saying, this is perhaps the most embarrassing thing I've ever done, not because of what I'm about to say or how I feel, but because I know, after spending a year selling thongs at Victoria's Secret, that nothing told to a woman is told in confidence. There is a 100% chance that the contents of this letter will be divulged to any number of people, male or female, and that they will largely be scoffed at and or laughed at. I'm fully aware of this, yet I'll say them anyways, as the burden of silence has come to far outweigh the fear of ridicule. Her response was short and to the point. She said nothing, then got engaged. No, no.
I'd gone into the job hoping to learn about women as well as regain my confidence to things I can confidently say I succeeded in doing. There is no medicine in the world for a man distraught like being around 20 girls and hearing on a daily basis that your butt looks good in the pants you're wearing. I was back to my old self in two months and dating again in three. The boobs disappeared too, thank God. Yet, the gay men haven't. They still hit on me at bars or when I'm working, but it doesn't really bother me anymore. After talking to random women about their breasts for a year and not having to worry about hearing, uh, my eyes are up here, I realize there's something to be said for being a perceived homosexual. I've supported it ever since. Thanks, guys. come up and like freely tell a story. I think it's gonna be a lot of fun. So more information on that. We're kind of still putting the information together. Chris, we come back up here and uh, let's give a big round of applause to Caroline, Coco, Hannah, Shelly, Chris, Nelly. So thank you all so much. I really appreciate you all coming out. Eight o'clock. Now you heard, go spread the word. They're funny, smart, and so absurd. Happens every month. It's the neatest storytelling at its sweet